fair to say that strategy is amorphous, fuzzy, vague, abstract, really hard to wrap your arms around, but it definitely makes recruiting and hiring better. It allows us to see a bigger picture. It allows us to position our company in a way that makes the most of the resources we have available. Moving from a world of tactics and transactions into something more strategic is not easy. Everybody already knows what hiring looks like. They have that sense of, well, you start by writing up the job posting, you publish it, you promote it, you wait for people to apply, and then you pick a winner. Moving to a new model requires a new vocabulary. It requires new thinking. It requires new ways of looking at challenges. This kind of change in mindset is complex. Companies make this leap in different directions, towards different goals, and run into different obstacles. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't take the leap. So in this, the third episode of The Brand Plan, Marcus and I select our eight biggest challenges, misconceptions, pitfalls, and sticking points that we've seen as we've helped companies evolve and think better about their talent acquisition strategies. You're listening to The Brand Plan, the podcast about the intersection of talent, brand, and strategy with your hosts, Marcus Body of 33 and James Ellis of Employer Brand Labs. Hey, Marcus. Hey, James. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are things in London? Actually, lo- lovely. We finally got a bit of summer, so for the week or two it lasts, we'll uh, we'll enjoy it. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Chicago hasn't gotten its week of summer yet. We're we're hoping. We're we honestly have only just started our week of spring, so we're hoping for, <laughs> for one day, one day. So today we're going to talk about, we spent the last two episodes talking about strategy and going super deep. And uh, I've heard the phone ring. So that may or may not be Oxford and or Harvard calling to say that they're granting us honorary doctorates on the subject. But today we're going to start to break down. Like strategy is this big idea. We actually have to do two whole episodes on it. What we're going to do today is start to pull apart what I'm thinking about is there are the pieces or the approaches to strategy, the ideas that you need to wrestle with to make sure your strategy works. How does that how does that fit for you? Yeah, definitely. I think there are a number of sort of big themes or ideas that I think anybody would do well to spend a bit of time thinking about. And, you know, hopefully you and I have learned a thing or two along the way and we can share some of what we've learned of what works and what doesn't work so that people can start thinking about, okay, how am I going to deal with this? Because a lot of it's going to come down to your situation, the right answer for one person is not going to be the same as the right answer to another. Back to what we were talking about in the previous episodes. This is specific. Yeah, and I'd like to keep it away from being my list of bugbears, but let's be fair. (laughs) It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Yes, inevitably. (laughs) So actually, we both wrote lists, and we haven't shared our lists, so if you're watching or listening, (laughs) this is exciting for us too. Uh, I'm going to let you kick it off. What is your first thing on your list of things uh, talent strategists should be considering or thinking about when they're thinking about their talent strategy? So I'm going to start right at the top with one of the things that I think is pretty fundamental for you to get clear very, very fast. And that is, how am I going to describe what I do? And how am I going to describe what a talent strategy is and why anyone else should care? And to some very different audiences. How do I say that to the HRD? How do I say that to other senior leaders how do i say that to someone incredibly junior who i just want to come and take part in a focus group or give me a quote for linkedin um and i think in particular how do i describe what i do to marketing in such a way that they're going to go oh this is someone worth us collaborating with not oh no this is someone who's going to ruin our hard crafted brands so i think there's a bunch of people who you need to be able to explain very very quickly 
what you do and why it's of value. And I think that's one thing. Yeah, and I want to I, I want to highlight this idea that marketing, until you prove yourself, just looks at you like a dilettante, like a like like baby Huey stomping all over, messing stuff up. Ooh, what's that? Ooh, what's that? I'm gonna press that button. I'm gonna make this happen, and they are terrified. Completely. Of, yeah, of you walking in and saying, hey, what about this? And they've had so many thoughts and conversations about what you just pitched that they don't want to rehash it. And they're, yeah, tr- trying not to be seen as a dilettante is a big one. Absolutely. They feel the same way that you would feel if finance turned up and said, hey, we've rewritten the careers homepage. You go, okay, that's not your area of expertise. And, and you have to establish your credibility before you can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and let's be no, let's be fair. CFOs always very creative, always you know tight language, uh, punchy, exciting, the sort of stuff you want to bring to bed and read, right? You know, it's, it's on your Kindle. You get to lie in bed and read that stuff. All right, yeah. Okay, uh, so that's my first call out. How about yourself? Give okay. us one in return. I'm actually going to skip my first one because I think oh. there's one that kind of ties into what you just said, and to me, it's this idea that. The industry, talent acquisition, the HR industry as a whole has been sold this idea that an EVP is an employer brand, that it is a one-to-one relationship. Oh, you have an employer brand? Let's see your EVP. You have an EVP? You must have an employer brand. And those things are related by blood, sort of, but they are not the same thing. It's, it, it, it's, they're so totally different. But everybody has been, magazines and blogs and podcasts, I guess, uh, have sold this idea, you got to have an EVP, and this is what an EVP is. And once you have an EVP, your employer brand problems are solved magically. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's not helped by the fact that all the experts in this area have completely different definitions. And it's not very helpful that every single agency, every single consultant has a slightly different idea of what an EVP is and what an employer brand is and what a tagline is and what a manifesto might be. And then there's the bigger stuff that sits around it as well, like values, behaviors, employee experience. I think we could spend a whole episode just agreeing what we reckon those things are, because if you're not clear on that, no one else will be. And, and that's a real danger when you get into conversations with the rest of the business. If you can't be quite clear about what those things are and indeed what they aren't. <laughs> yeah, I still have conversations where people say, well, this is our culture, so that's our brand. You're like, whoa, <laughs> no. No, I'm sorry, and I apologize. Because first, let's be fair. We could do an hour on what is the definition of culture. Like that okay. is that is the biggest McGill I can think of. That we, you know, people are still kind of assuming. Oh, it's the you know, get, stepping aside from the ping pong tables and, and beer on Friday or whatever, you know, your particular goofy culturey thing you do at work is. Culture is so much bigger, and to equate it and to say, oh, we'll just take one and slap it on the other, and we're good to go. It it completely it gets to me. It's it's so indicative of how. People do not understand, to your very first point, what the heck is this thing? What is the value it provides? Why are you doing it? What's important about it? How does it get built? How does it get done? And I'm I'm fully on board with the idea that every single agency, every single consultant has a their own take on how to do it because it's – to me, I think of EVP development as what is your and, – and forgive the term, but gimmick for getting at something deeper at Completely. work. That's really what it's about. And just say, oh, it's slap an EVP on it, put some columns on it, boom, 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 or pillars, you're good to go. About probably about 10, 15 years ago, when I was still primarily a researcher, my boss then said to me, can you just go and find what the proper definition is of employee engagement? 
And I came back to him and I said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The good thing is I've got a definition. The problem is I've also got another 42 other definitions and they're all from credible people. And right. And that's just employee engagement. We found like over 40 different definitions of it. And, it, and they're all roughly in the same space, but, but significantly different. And depending on the definition you picked, you get a different answer. I think the important thing is figuring out what these things mean at your organisation. And if your founder has created a purpose statement that we all look at and go, well, it's not a purpose statement, but never mind. It is in your organisation because the founder wrote it and you're going to have to live with it. Now figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to define your culture and your EVP and your employer brand. You always have to deal with what's in front of you, not how you'd like the world to be. Yeah, yeah. It's akin to the 80s and 90s where we had, it was mission focused. Like every company had to have a mission and that was a thing. And, yeah. you know, it was like, what did you do with it? What, what was the good of that? How, how, how did you describe it? How do you define it? Like, we're, it, it's so funny. We're getting better at all this stuff at, in the world of business, and yet somehow we're still wrestling with the same problems, which, you know, you wonder how, how good a job are we doing? We're, we have to get better. We have to get better. I, I, did a, I did a purpose project with a client a couple of years ago where we were defining their new global purpose. and We spent probably the first three months of the project agreeing what a purpose was. Because until we did that, we couldn't really start to come up with an answer. But, you know, that was a very useful conversation. And by the end of it, we knew what we thought it was. Then we could come up with, with some candidates for the answer. And it's kind of the same with employer brands and EVPs. I'm not very dogmatic, but we'll, we can look into what some of the answers are and what we think of them. Totally, totally. I, 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 I think of myself, especially in this area, as non-dogmatic. Whatever gets you to the place where Complete. you can go, I get it, I can kind of wrap my head around it, and as I pass it from person to person, they have a similar perspective of the elephant. They're not just looking at the leg or the tail or the trunk or whatever. However you get there is how you get there, and that's, that's the right answer. If you want to start an argument in a room full of uh, employer brand consultants, just wander in and go, so EVP, is that employer value proposition or employee value proposition? And then run yeah. away, and they will yeah. be arguing three hours later. Yeah. It's a verbal grenade. You just toss it into a room and walk Absolutely. out. Yeah. Smart. <laughs> All right. What is your second big idea, big bullet point, big thing to wrestle with? Which one should I go for? I'm going to go with a big one that's very close to my heart uh, because of my background, which is data. And the fact that we have a lot of people who say, I want to do something very data driven, or you get a lot of people saying I'm data obsessed, or you know, you see it in people's LinkedIn bios. And then there's an uncomfortable truth that a lot of the data in our realm is rubbish, it's really rubbish. It's statistically not valid. It's been collected badly. It's been analysed incredibly weirdly. And there's a really important question about what data are you going to use? What data can you buy? What data can you generate internally? What data could you get someone else to make for you? And how much store should you put in it? Because none of it's going to be perfect. And I think we can do a whole episode talking about what, what do you actually use as your data sources here, bearing in mind that we all live in the real world and have limited budgets and, you know, you can't do the perfect data collection. What do you do with imperfect data? And I think that's a big issue that, again, a lot of suppliers in, in the industry will try and tell you they've got the perfect data set. They haven't. Um and how are you going to deal with imperfect data sets? It doesn't mean you can't use data, but it does mean you've got to use it in a very grown-up, mature way. Yeah, I, I, uh, to pop everybody's balloon, I ask only one simple question. How comfortable and secure are you in your attribution models? 
game. <laughs> I mean, it is the most, literally the most simple data collection. The last click came from LinkedIn. The last click came from Indeed. The last click came from who cares job board. The last click was from an email. Do you actually trust your ATS to collect that data and connect that data to the application? Because we've all, and I mean everybody in the sound of my voice, we have all been in those rooms. We start to unpack that report and say, wait a second. If I ask blah, 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 job board, they said they sent 12 people over, but we're saying we only saw two and the fights begin. And so, so that is the most basic like unit of data that you can actually collect. It's, it is not touched by human hands, right? It's yeah. literally passed from server to server. It is the most safest piece of data you can think of. And yet even that is for the most part, at least 20% garbage. And then to say, okay, now let's add on human data and let's add a human collection processes and, and perception data and how, oh yeah, it is an absolute nightmare. Data, data is, as you say, completely one of those carrots you dangle in front of people say, we have data, we're data driven. And then as you unpack it, you realize 90% of the processes collecting this data, 60% of the tools used to collect that data, just watching a tool that says, oh, we're gonna drive leads or going to drive applications does it pass data to the the thing that passes data to the ATS chances are no and so what are you going to believe completely completely and I think this is it's something where you can make a you can make a real mistake if you kind of over believe in your data and at some point the management information becomes management disinformation and you can make some really bad decisions if you go well there's some data so I'll use it you always got to stop and look at it and go, where did this data come from? How was it collected? What does it really say? Not what I'd like it to say. And therefore, how much should I be using it to influence which decisions? And sometimes you have to be honest and go, there is no data set that is going to inform this decision. Either I need to go and make one, or I'm going to have to take a risk. And that's a very difficult decision to make for someone who's you know, declared in their LinkedIn bio, I'm data obsessed and I like data-driven decisions. It's really difficult to admit when you're gonna to have to make one that isn't. Yeah, I, I, uh, the, my rule of thumb is always all data is wrong. But if you're lucky, all data that you're looking at is wrong in the same way consistently over time. Like I, I, I came from a marketing world where Google Analytics was the thing. And you're like, look, do not like lock on in a number. And I know that it's, it's looks statistically significant. I know it's calculating blah, blah, blah to the, you know, the hundredths of a thousandth of a decimal point or whatever. And it looks real, like, but it's totally a Potemkin village. It is totally a facade. You just have to understand that, okay, if this number goes up by a certain amount, chances are, and that's a very important term, chances are that that's what's happening in the real world, but never, ever, ever, ever lock in a number because they're all wrong. The, the only danger here, James, is that when we get on to talking about this for real in the main episode, you're going to have to stop me going off on a mathematical thing about Pearson correlation coefficients for like 20 minutes because it's, I have calculated them by hand. I know the formula from which it's carved and they are more complicated and tricksy than you think they are and things that look correlated aren't really. And there's a, there is a, it's always a measure of, is this a fluke result? It's never, is this true or false? Mark, Marcus, were, were you trained as an engineer, perhaps? Just a little, just a little. Yeah. Just a little. Okay. <laughs> I, meanwhile, I can spell data, and that's as far as I like to get it. I, the number of times I see minus my way through a statistic class, like hanging on by my fingernails. So my job in that, in, in that episode is going to be funny, because my job will just be to throw thumbtacks under your feet, Man. not knowing what those thumbtacks mean, and just trying to trip you up, just trying to see what happens. So tune in for that, folks. That'll be a fun one. Absolutely. So what do we got next? What else have we got? So we've got data. What's, what's going to be the next topic after that? 
I mean, honestly, data is a great kind of oldie but a goodie. So here's my oldie but a goodie. This is the thing I absolutely cannot believe we are still having conversations about, or more importantly, the thing that when I bring up, bring it up, people try to argue with me. This is the saying, the sky is blue, the world is round, pizza is delicious, right? There are certain inherent truths to life. This is just how it is. You have to accept it or I don't know what you're doing all day. And that is this. Marketing, classic marketing is about quantity. Recruitment marketing, employer brand recruiting is about quality. And I'm going to prove it real quick for the, for the 17th billionth time, but what the heck, we might as well. Here's the deal. If you're selling a, whether it's, whether you're selling a jet plane or you're selling a toothbrush, if someone shows up with the cash, you do not ask them, has, when was the last time you bought a plane? It's seen, I've got I've got a list of all the times you bought planes. It's been three years since you bought a plane. Can you explain the gap in the time you you did not buy a plane? If they show up and the check clears, congratulations, you made the sale. In recruiting, you got the one seat. You got to fill it. So you don't fill it. You fill it with the best person. Now, when I say quality versus quantity, marketers get get all clenched up and they're like, oh, but I like quality too. I'm like, no, no, no. You like a threshold of quality. And that threshold is this. Yeah. Does the check clear? Does yeah. the, do they have credit in the account? Do they have the money that they say they have? You can use terms like marketing qualified leads and I, and please do. You can do it for sales qualified leads. I get that. All you're doing is looking for a threshold of do, do they have the money to pay for this thing? And that is so different from how we have to operate, right? This, I, I, I marketing, worships at the church of more and that's their job more leads more shelf space more eyeballs more impressions more clicks more views more 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 all they want is more yes. and if you gave if you sold a thousand a ten thousand toothbrushes you're getting an award if you get ten thousand people to apply for a job you're getting fired therein lies the difference exactly no, i couldn't agree more i mean i think possibly one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my career many, many years ago was making a job ad that was too attractive. And it was for a local government organisation who were legally obliged to reply to every applicant. And it, it swamped their team for months because we'd done too good an ad and we hadn't asked enough in it. And yeah, it's a completely different... I think I had this kind of, but in a bigger topic of things that we're over-impressed about consumer advertising that we should stop copying and yeah this is part of it i think also some of the techniques in consumer advertising that flow from that quantity piece they just don't work when you bring them over into employer advertising and even worse some of them are actively dangerous um, i know you and i have spoken about this before briefly but i mean i'm going to go both barrels at personas and the problems with using consumer style personas when you come into employer branding Great technique in the consumer world. Even there, though, you'll find a lot of people who go, ah, they really worth it. You start doing them in employer branding, there's all sorts of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion problems you can create for yourself because that's not an issue in consumer branding and it's a massive issue in employer branding. So I think we have a tendency to go, oh, if consumer are doing it, we should do it too. And sometimes that's not a bad idea, but sometimes it's a terrible idea. And I think we need to have the self-confidence to look at stuff and go, yeah, that's great for them, but not for us. Yeah, the, the consumer marketing FOMO is real. Like they have they have some dead sexy tools, man. They have they have stuff that you're like, oh, there's a little bit of drool coming out of your mouth. Like, I want that. I want that so bad. And you know, 
the amount of work to refactor, which is really what that is, to say, how do I take this interesting tool that does X, but designed to get as many things as possible? How do I refactor it to drive a message that's going to get the two people? Because yeah. to me, platonically, the only thing you really want are two applicants, the one you hire and the one you say, that was so close. We're really <laughs> sorry. We're putting you in the file, but we're definitely going to call you next week, right? That's all you want. Anything yeah. beyond that is wasted energy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, to me, there's this, this idea that um, because consumer does it, we have to do it. We have to follow suit that because we're just the dilettantes, we don't have access to the same resources. Yeah, it's it's the same kind of problem. And we are playing a, a really bad game of follow the leader. I, I feel like sometimes I'm the bad guy on LinkedIn because whenever someone posts that phrase of uh, your candidate is your customer, I've got a really bad habit of replying, no, they aren't. Stop. If you had the same relationship with your customers as you do with your candidates, you would lose all your customers, you know. The customer walks in the door. You don't say, first of all, can you fill out this enormous form for me? No, you don't. Like, you might do that at a later stage. But it's a bit of a nonsense to say, oh, your candidate is your customer or your employee is your customer. No, it, no, they aren't. You've got a completely different relationship with them. And you have to do the hard work to think about what that relationship is going to be. You can't just kind of try and steal this model over, from over there that does something completely different. It's not good enough. It's not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, how should the approaches differ? I think is a really worthwhile conversation. Yeah, and I think to me the litmus test, or the or not the litmus test, more like the the indicator that proves that this is true, is that getting a job is life changing experience, right? You, even if you're just moving jobs from across the street, it's still changing your life. And the only other consumer interaction that comes anywhere close is buying a home. Yeah. Now. Look at how realtors and real estate agents and listing agents think about that. One, their page is not click this to buy this house. It's 4,000 photos, it's video walkthroughs, it's a drone shot of the neighborhood. It's, it's, it's what they paid in taxes on this building 12 years ago. It is, this is the school, to, like the amount of data you throw in an average, and this is not even a good one, an average house listing dwarfs anything we tell people when they're we ask them to apply for a job and our you know uh, realtors will tell you the same thing i'm not interested in getting four thousand people to walk through the door in the open house i only have to do that when there's a problem when i'm desperate to move this property for the most part they want one person to see it go this checks all my boxes this is fantastic let's take one look yep double check that look to make sure you know sleep on it and come back and boom we're done they do not want everybody in the world to say, oh, this is a dream property. They want the one right fit to show up. Yeah, exactly. I think, it, yeah, you're right. It is one of the few things where there's a really good parallel. It's also back to that point of you tend to only have one at a time unless you're pretty wealthy. You know, it, it, it is that thing of I've got a house that I'm not happy with, so I'm going to try and upgrade to one that makes me more happy or something in my life has changed and therefore I need a different house. Right. That, that one's a pretty good analogy. But almost every other kind of consumer advertising, you don't have that trade-off, you know, Mars don't have to persuade me to stop eating a different chocolate bar to sell me a Mars bar. They can just sell me a Mars bar, right? It's a, it's a whole different ball game and it changes everything about how you're going to do it. This year, one agency won more RAD awards for recruitment marketing, branding, and communications than any other with work that has transformed the employer brand of some of the world's biggest companies. That agency might be a name you don't recognize yet. Stay tuned to learn more. Okay, I think you're up for the next topic. What do you got? I am. Um, let's say I want to talk about, I think there's this really interesting idea about 
employer brands and the scale at which they're going to happen and how you're going to federate them through a business. So to explain what I mean by that is I have so often worked on projects where there's a global employer brand that was led in one country and now we've got to roll it out in other countries or vice versa. I get someone on the phone to me saying, head office over in that country over there have come up with a new global employer brand that I have to deal with, but it's all wrong for my market. How do I adapt it? How do I make it work? And I think there's a, there's an interesting question about can your business have one global EVP? Can it have one global brand? If it can, how are you going to manage that and do it in a way that it resonates in different places and with different audiences? And genuinely, the answers are definitely going to be different from business to business. Depends how complicated your business is. Depends how much your job offer varies around your business. You know, if everyone in your business is in the same profession, yeah, maybe. If they're not, less likely. If you're in completely different countries, it can be different again. You know, I've worked with businesses which are so big, they are literally a different company in different countries that, you know, in one country, they're a retailer. In a different country, they're a manufacturer. Are you going to be able to do one consistent global EVP? You can have some consistency, but not a lot. And yeah, it, it, it's a game of picking your battles. Where right. do you want consistency? Where does consistency matter? And where is there flexibility to say, as I localize this idea to that particular audience, as I localize my US-based audience or US-based message to the Polish surface center, exactly. where the concept of they get to wear jeans is as much of a selling point as they need to get super excited, yeah, things fall apart real fast. I mean, particularly when I've worked with American clients in the past, the, the big thing that I have to sort of explain to people is, you know your amazing benefits package. That's just normal in France. So massive selling point where you are, but yeah, you can talk about it in France, but no one's going to be impressed at all because that's the legal minimum. And and vice versa, you know, saying to European clients, it's like, right, there are things that you are now going to need to care about very, very deeply that matter in the US market that don't matter in different markets. And it's the same with every single employment market you go into. You have to look at how much has our answer changed, but then how much does everybody else's answer different? Because it might be your answer is the same, but everyone around you is now a very different type of employer and behaving in a different way. Okay, you're going to need to look at this answer again. And, and ask yourself some hard questions about, can we use the same answer everywhere? And do we need to use the same answer everywhere? And actually, what language were we talking in in which countries anyway? Because we might well need to have translated it at some point, whatever. At which point you start going, okay, well, our core definition can't be that pedantic anyway, because it'd be very silly to come up with something very pedantic if we're immediately going to have to translate it into German and Polish and French and Spanish. And you know, it makes more sense to have a kind of looser core if that's what you're going to end up doing with it. Yeah, and it's the balancing act. Like, you know, we kind of start off, the only thing we all agree on is pizza's delicious, the sky is blue, <laughs> the world is round. I mean, everything else beyond that is up for debate. I mean, have you had three friends try to order a pizza and figure out what toppings go on? It's the least, it's the lowest of stakes, and yet somehow that seems to take forever. Now, imagine right. one of those friends lives in Istanbul. Yeah, well, yeah. Good luck. Well, you know, have fun. And you can see when a global brand's done this, because the thing you end up with is kind of okay, but it's really anodyne. And there's like, we have something about training and development, but we refuse to be very specific about what. And the reason is because the answer is so different in different places. And it's kind of like, maybe you'd have been better off not trying to do a global answer because the global answer you've come up with is so vague, it no longer means anything. And that doesn't mean you got it wrong. You, you, yeah. you probably got that right. 
But what it does mean is, why are you bothering with that global answer at all? Don't you need a different answer in different places? Yeah, the, your your brand is a tool. Yeah, and if it if you're if you're if you're trying to build an entire house with just the one hammer, I hate to tell you, you might need a saw and a screwdriver now and then. Uh, not to mention the seven thousand other specialized tools I can't think of mind. But I think that's what we, we we appreciate that we've checked this box on an EVP and say, great, now put it on a big poster, put it on a big billboard, email it to everybody that moves and stick it in our Slack. Like put it on a little card yeah. and put that card on a little plexi frame that sticks in every single conference room and check, 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 we're done. And you're like, no, I, it doesn't work that way. Now just just to get this is just for me. This is just for me, Marcus. Sure. This is, you know, I don't care if anybody's listening. I call that localization. You not did not use that word. Is that a, like a, a weird thing I think of, or is that like a just your choice of language? No, I, th I think it can be the answer, and and then you know it's it's how are you localizing it, and to what extent do you need to localize it? You know, I've worked with certainly businesses in the U.S. where we've localized it to the East Coast and the West Coast because they had two different populations doing very different things. And up against some quite different competitors. So we really localised it. And, you know, sometimes, and I've certainly done that uh, with clients in the UK as well, where, you know, we've had, you know, a value proposition to come and work in one of our call centres. But the answer to that is very different depending on where that call centre is because it's got different competitors there and people are commuting different distances. And in some places, they're the top payer in that region. And in other places, they're not the top payer in that region. So you can really localise it. I think there's always a tension between you kind of want everything to be the same because it'll be easier from a governance point of view and you've got to create less content that way. But you do need to localise it as much as it needs to localise. And there's no getting around that. You have to at some point go, come on now, how much do we have to make this change in order to make it work? And back to your point, you know, that, that's always my acid test is, yeah, but does it work? Does it do what we need it to do? If it does, great. If it doesn't, Forget what model you were using. Throw all those rules out the window. Find the answer that works. <laughs> Always. Yeah. All right. I think it's my turn. Uh, okay. So this is this is poorly described, but I think the second I say it, you'll be like, oh, okay. yeah. And the worst part is I, I have like a 40% chance of you just whipping out a term I've not heard. And she's like, oh, yeah, James, we call that this. I'm like, oh, God. I look dumb in front of Marcus. Um this idea that employer brand gets pigeonholed in the pretty picture, pretty words business. Right. Hey, fill out the Instagram, make the pretty pictures, make the job postings look better, make the career site look attractive. Oh, I saw this other career site. It's all parallax and it does this funny thing when you scroll and it's super sexy. Do this thing, make it pretty. And I, I, I it drives me crazy because you know, for a very long time, for those of you who remember, the two most important websites in the entire known universe were Amazon and Google. And the two ugliest websites in the entire known universe were Amazon and Google. Yeah. They weren't pretty, they weren't well written, they were incredibly useful. And every time I think about putting employer brand into that pretty picture, pretty words category, I think, what is it trying to do? What is it trying to achieve? Which goes right back to that strategy idea. It's not about making it look nice. It's about making something meaningful. You know, you look at movies. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dune is gorgeous, gorgeously shot, 
Blair Witch is shot with, you know, what looks like the crappiest phone they could find, and yet somehow at the end of it, I'm scared. Like, I, I have an emotional reaction to this thing. It's not about pretty pictures and words. It's what is the mental state? How can I influence someone's perception? How can I, you know, manipulate them emotionally in a very ethical kind of way, right? Yeah. That is the purpose of what we're trying to do in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think you also have to think through, you know, where, where are you stopping? You know, is this just to get an application in or, you know, this should go through into onboarding, this should go through into employee experience and then it becomes very real and it's really not about pretty pictures. This is now about what actually happens and, okay, if we've promised everyone X in the job ads, how do we remind them when they join that they're getting X? How do we make sure that their line manager knows that they should be getting X? How are we going to put, are you getting X into the employee survey? And it's not now about, pretty words and pictures or a strap line or are you going to have giraffes or donkeys in your ads this is now about how are you going to use this thing to affect the way that you are as an employer and the way that you talk about the way you are as an employer and that's then a whole bigger can of worms that you are getting into but it's a really worthwhile one and this is when you can get the senior execs in your company really interested in, and you'll go right we're going to use this for employee experience rather than just what goes in the job ads. They're not interested in what goes in the job ads. They may be interested in what's in a video that they personally are in, but they're much more interested as soon as you say, this is the way we are going to behave towards all the people who work here. This is what we're going to measure in the staff survey. This is how we're going to, this is the premise around which people are going to have their annual review process. Okay, now I'm interested. If I run that business, I, I want to talk about this. So I think there is a, a thing there about, you know, and this is where you do get to the terminology of EVP versus employer brand. Because I think as soon as you say employer brand, people think pictures and words. And, and that's not entirely wrong. But actually, you you can make a play for a much bigger thing here. And I've, I've debated with clients before about what should you call this thing? Do you call it employer identity? Do you call it employer spirit? Do you call it, you know... The, the, the people promise. You find people using all sorts of different phrases for this. Um, but yeah, I think there is a bigger thing beyond there's the words and pictures or, you know, there's what happens on the Instagram. That's Those are things that you will need to do, but they're not the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote an article with some friends and we came up with these 16 core competencies of what an employer brand or should do. Yeah. Knowing how to make pictures look nice and write words that, you know, being a competent writer is good, but so is stakeholder management. Complete. So is expectation setting. So is data collection and, and use. So is, so is, so is. And to say, because the pretty pictures, the pretty words are so obvious, we're just going to stick a tack in that and say, this is who you are. Yeah. Eliminate. I, it guts the ability of an employer brand or, or an employer brand function from making real change across the organization, which is really what it's there for. Completely. And, and I think, you know, bluntly as well, the pretty work, pretty pictures and words is the easiest bit to outsource and get done well. Of course, by 33's award-winning creative department or other suppliers should you choose a lesser one. But, you know, it, it's not too difficult to outsource that stuff. Whereas some of the other bits, you definitely need to do and you definitely need to be all over. And so, you know, totally. I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said for, you know, developing your other skills rather than just kind of making the ads look nice over indexing on the pretty yeah exactly. yeah yeah okay cool. uh you're you're up next what you got next okay i've got a dangerous one next or a, a contentious one which i think 
is quite a difficult conversation, which is about how much can or should we innovate or experiment in employer branding and what are the risks and benefits in doing so? And I think there's, you know, the fast way I sometimes explain this to people is if, if you were in charge of talent acquisition at a, at a business and I said to you, right, James, I'm going to give you a big, shiny red innovation button that you can press. And if you press that button, one of two things is going to happen. 50% chance that your business is going to recruit every single person you recruit is going to be 10% better. Every single one of them, right? Forevermore. 50% chance the careers website crashes uncontrollably for three weeks, right? Are you going to press that button? I, 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 you know what? I might, but I don't know many people who would say that. And if I said yes, it would be for me yeah. and my business where I have total control. There is nobody short of a CEO, and even I can't imagine the CEO saying, who's not named <coughs> Musk, to actually press that button. Everybody else would be like, the downside is so high on a situation like that that the upside is just dwarfed. But, but it kind of isn't, because if you think about it, the upside is massive. To everyone 10% better, the whole workforce, the upside of that is enormous. And the Chris website's down for three weeks. Ah, the Chris website's down for three weeks. That used to happen all the time in the early 2000s, and no one cared. But it's because the failure is immediately measurable and obvious and instant. Whereas success is much more subtle and success is much harder to prove. And if everyone in your business is 10% better, you can bet everyone's claiming responsibility for that. All the line managers are saying, oh, well, that's because of the amazing way. L and D are going, oh, it's the brilliant way we're onboarding and training people. The chance of you actually getting credit for that are quite low and would take years to prove. Whereas the, the risks of failure are very instant and very immediate. And this is always the challenge when, you know, when it comes to doing something like an employer brand, you go, okay, if a client says to us, right, we want to differentiate ourselves, I go, oh, that's easy to differentiate yourself. Are you sure you want to? And, you know, I've, I've certainly had this conversation before with a law firm who said, how do we differentiate ourselves? And I said, oh, you could do it like this. And I sort of wrote some stuff and they said, that doesn't sound like a law firm. And I said, no, it doesn't. That's why it'll differentiate you. But you don't really want to do that, do you? Because <laughs> it's actually, if you want a differential tone of voice, it's easy. Put a swear word in every single sentence. That is a unique tone of voice no one is using. Do you want to do it? No, you don't. Because the risks are far greater than the benefits. And yeah, you can wear you can wear a chicken outfit on the side with the street with a big sign, and you'll get brand awareness. It's different. It's it's a it's no one else is doing it. Is it serving the purpose you need it to serve? Exactly. So there's this fine line between okay, we can't be too stuck in the mud, or we'll get behind and we'll lose competitive edge, and our competitors are going to get ahead of us. But if we're too risky and edgy and let's do something new, you've got to do it in a really conscious way about, do I know what risk I'm taking and how am I doing it? And I sometimes talk to clients about, you know, if you've got a budget, maybe go, right, 95% of it we're going to use on stuff that we know works. But we're going to set aside this pot that we'll build up over time to do something that we don't know if it works. And when there's enough money in it, we'll spend it and see what happens. But then it's okay if it doesn't work. Because we, we said, actually, we're okay with that much failure. We're okay with that much error. And it is much harder, I think, to do from talent acquisition or HR than it is from marketing. Marketing love having a punt at something. And if you speak to any you know long-serving marketeer about their career, they will happily tell you about the most expensive mistake they ever made. Oh, I spent millions on this TV campaign. And they almost revel in it. Because they're all about, I did something edgy and, and dangerous and difficult. And, you know, it's not really about, I saved a bit of money off the edge here. They, they, yeah. It's a much tougher thing to do 
when you're in the kind of role where people only really notice when you get it wrong, you know? Yeah, and, and, and consumer marketing, remember, they are so driven by ads, and you don't get ads by being 5% better than somebody else. You get ad, you get awards by, by saying, how do I do the splashiest thing that everybody can see? Yeah. And that, because agencies are driven, have a, have a need for awards. I had someone in a, a forum say, my boss wants me to get an, an award. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on. Do you want a we're a great place to work award, which, by the way, is a bullet point I could definitely add and say, you know, when you buy those, so can everybody else. Okay, so that may limit the value. But to say that you got an award for in-house employer brand is doing great employer branding, what exactly is the value of that? So, yeah, there's this sense of I have to take these big swings in order to show off an employer brand because it is life-changing, because you're talking about people's lives and their experiences in 8 to 10, 12 hours a day, every day of they, they live, there's only so much, uh, um, I won't say risk and I won't say change, but certainly difference. Like, Because when you invest in something different, if you say, hey, we're going to do it this yeah. way, the amount of time and energy and resources it takes to explain it yeah. to someone walking in cold usually just kind of beats up any kind of potential value of getting that, right? If you say, hey, we're going to not take applications on our ATS, what you're going to do is you're going to write it on a piece of paper, you're going to set it on fire, and we will via the blah, 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 amazing magic Wi-Fi thingama, it will get absorbed by the, the big hive brain who will define who exactly needs to get it. You're like, that sounds great. It actually solves all these problems. And every candidate goes, I do what now? And you have to make a video and you have to make another video and you have to make a, a helper text as you do it. So, hey, you should write this. And like everything is so invested in this radical change, which it will definitely feel like you're changing purely for the sake of change. Complete. I mean, I can remember the first time I persuaded clients to use Facebook, which seemed like a very radical idea in like 2008, 2009. And you know, now it's absurdly kind of like, ah, oh, that's old hat. But it felt like an enormous risk at the time because we weren't really using social media. You know, you might have had a feed that was just putting job links onto Twitter, but no, no one was doing kind of anything substantial with, with social media until really probably only about 10, 12 years ago, we all started going, oh, actually, maybe there's something in this. Um, but it felt like a huge risk at the time. And there were some clients for whom it was just not going to be an acceptable risk. And I don't think they were wrong to make that decision. It was an unacceptable risk for them there were other clients for whom it was like yeah cool we'll have a go at this if it doesn't work we're okay with it we're good because we can't promise you it will work until we've tried it once we've tried it we'll all know whether it works or not (laughs) yeah i mean the pharma industry has only just recently accepted uh, uh, facebook facebook content because it allows for in a regulatory environment it allows for people to post what they call an adverse event or an adverse reaction and legally they have to respond to those things which means monitoring and keeping track of that and it's just it is a headache that they do not need right you and and by the way if you base your medication based on what Facebook tells you to do, there's bigger challenges here and we don't need to get into that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, it could be worse. You could be using TikTok for, for medical information. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I think there is there is an interesting kind of conversation to be had about, you know, let's have a grown-up conversation about when we're going to innovate and when we're not going to innovate. And when we are going to innovate, how are we going to do that? And who should do the innovation? I think there's... There's sometimes a very unfair thing happens that we ask junior people to come up with huge ideas, but then we kind of hold them to account for the results of them. And it's like, no, no, if you want someone to be really innovative, you have to say, come up with an idea and it's fine if it's bonkers and doesn't work. And that person will go away and come up with a much more interesting idea. 
than if you say, come up with an idea and a business case. Okay, you're immediately going to constrain them and they're not going to come up with the most interesting idea. And it's it's one of the things that, you know, when I'm working with junior creatives in our agency, I'll, you know, I'll do everything I can to kind of try and empower them to think as big as possible and not start bringing in reality and not start going, but it has to be something that the client might sign off or it has to be something within. It's like, no, no, no. Just go away and come up with the most creative answer you can. And I don't care if it's the moon on a stick or projecting the client's logo onto Mars. You, you come up with that, and then we'll figure out what's the doable version of that. But yeah, the the inverse of that is uh, everybody who can hear me raise your hand if you've been asked to do something innovative. And when presented, the client said, "And how many other clients have done that before? Can you tell me three other times that's happened before?" And my instinct is to tell them what the word innovation means because they don't clearly have a clue. So it is a, it's a balancing act. I think you're right. Having that meaningful conversation of what are you trying to do? What is your appetite for risk? What is your willingness to accept that risk internally and the political, you know, uh, you know, backlash that may occur because of it, that is crucial. Absolutely. Yes. That, that phrase that gets used a lot in brand marketing of, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. In employee branding, there is such a thing as bad publicity. Very, very definitely. <laughs> Meet 33. Known for creating and elevating some of the world's most valuable employer brands here in the U.S. and across the pond in Europe, 33 understands that everyone has a story to tell. From KFC to BMW, from AWS to KPMG, 33 has been building some of the most creative and influential employer brands around the world. If you want to see how they can tell your company's story, head to their website in our show notes. All right, I think I got the next one. So um, I have it written as employer brand as defense instead of offense. And that's a horrible way of terming it, but I, you, your reaction made me go, oh, good. Yeah. I'm, 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 this made sense, right? This idea that employer brand is how you polish off edges. It's how you respond to negative reviews. It's how you get defensive, how to not be seen as negative, how to kind of whitewash as much as humanly possible to just remove any of the negative connotations, ideas, perceptions around it, that is the purpose of employer brand. And that is like maybe 10%, if, if it's even that, because to me, every good brand doesn't fit everybody. Yeah. So therefore, your amazing brand might be amazing to Marcus, but I'm gonna be like, no, that sounds horrible. And that's a win for you, That's and vice versa, right? It's a win. And to say that it's all about being defensive and not saying, how do we stake, you know, put a, a, stake, a stake in the sand and say, this is who we are, this is what we're all about, we're totally fine if you don't get it. To be meaningfully interesting, meaningfully different and compelling, that is the goal of employer brand. That is the work that should be done not how do we play, you know, sit in the safe zone to make sure nobody hates us for any reason. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if you try to please all the people all the time, you're going to fail. You know, it's the the, the P.T. Barnum thing, isn't it? But, um, yeah, genuinely, people do want different stuff. Um, I was running a focus group this morning for a client, and we I was talking with some of their staff about, you know, it's the kind of environment where, I hate the phrase, but, you know, no two days are the same. But there's loads of variety because they work on project work and those projects keep changing. And the staff were really happy about that fact. But one of them said, but I've got friends who'd hate that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some people want to specialise and want to get really good at a specific niche. They should not work for you. Absolutely. Everything you've told me. And, and we had a really interesting discussion about who shouldn't work for them. 
with the people who do and the people who like it. But they were like, oh, yeah, I can think of like several people who would hate it here because of this, this and this. And it's, you know, those are the things I love about working here, but things other people legitimately might not like. And, you know, I think there's there's very obvious examples. Those in every single client I've worked with, you know, if you have a lot of structure that really suits some people and other people hate it, I would hate that. But other people absolutely love having some structure and clarity about what's going on. I love a lack of clarity. I'm brilliant. I can do whatever I feel like. Fantastic. I'll go and record a podcast. But other people want to have a very defined sense of what their job is, what good looks like when they're doing a good job. And it's a, it, you can't be everything to everyone. And you should. And if you try to be, you're kind of you're setting yourself up to fail. What you can do is figure out who you are, and then decide which bits of that you want to keep and revel in. And which bits that you, you might go, oh, gosh, we need a change programme here because we've discovered who we are and we don't like it. OK, <laughs> that's a different matter. But you do have to do this kind of analysis of who are the people we want to come and work here and what might they want and what have we got to offer them? And, and that is a much more, I mean, back to the earlier bit we had about personas, that's a much more mature way of thinking about your audiences is what are the mindsets of the people who we want to come and work here and what have we got to say to them and there might be more than one you might go actually people who work for us could be this kind of person or could be that kind of person we can be this kind of employer for that kind of person and this kind of employer for that kind of person that's fine uh, but you need to think through that bit rather than simply trying to be the best employer at everything because you can't be the best employer at everything it is impossible because that would involve being some diametrically opposed things yeah, the more you move north, the less you have moved south. Right. And some people want north and some people want south and you are happy for one and sad for the other. That is – and let's be fair. There's so much about recruiting that is so uh, – received wisdom and received perception from a long time ago. This is not a world of scarcity. There are eight b -b 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 billion people in the world and if you can conceive of a number that big – that's impressive. There are so many people out there that you don't need to appeal to 50% of them or 5% of them or 0.0005% of them to get a lot of talent. Unless your name is Amazon, uh, you really don't need that many people to say there's something really compelling and really interesting and something that speaks to me in a way that no other company speaks to me and you're starting to really create that emotional connection. That's what it's all about. And it's fine if no one else wants it. So we work with one of the biggest employers in the UK, the British Army. It's one of the biggest employers. We know that most people in the country don't want to join the army and never will. And that's fine. And they're, they're, you know, But there is no point of spending a lot of energy thinking about those people who are never going to join the army and it isn't the right choice for them. And, and you know, good luck to them with whatever they are doing instead. Are you a 65-year-old re retiree? Maybe the British <laughs> Army is for you. But, you know, it, it is about getting rational about who is it we actually need to talk to. And, and, you know, even within a professional group, you'll find it's a subset of that professional group. Okay, within that professional group, what's the mindset we're trying to appeal to? What kind of person is it that, that we need at this stage in our business? And that might change over time, especially if you're like a, a startup. I worked with a, a client a while ago who... You know, they, they had a brilliant global director of operations who sort of said to me, our business has kind of just gone through puberty. We were a startup for a while and then we were an unruly teenager. Now we're becoming a big grown up business. That changes who we need. Right. And, and at those three different phases, we needed completely different people 
and and almost like if you were brilliant in our startup phase, you're going to be a nightmare in our next phase, and vice versa. People we would have had no use for at all in our startup phase are going to be absolutely the people we need to be hiring over the next few years. And suddenly we need a completely different language about what we're going to say about ourselves. But we also need to change some of the reality of that offer as well. Gosh, HR, we need to completely revisit learning and development because we've got a different kind of person coming in now and they're going to want more structure and they're going to want more kind of qualifications and they're going to want continuous professional development and us to pay for their chartered membership of institutes and things and things that people didn't want when we were a startup. And now suddenly we, we actually have to change who we are as an employer because we're into a new yep. phase. Yeah. And this is and this is where talent strategy has to embrace the entirety of the company. It has to see the bigger picture, play the entire game to really make its 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 impact known. Uh, do you have one more? I thought you said you had six. So I, I, I'm putting. You I on think we've right. kind of covered everything because there was a little bit of overlap between some of some of your yeah. ideas and some of my. I mean, I think there's. I mean, all of these are quite big topics, but they're all kind of relatively simple, straightforward things to think through. For you know, and I think one of the things. I would want people to take away from this is like there is no right answer there are definitely some wrong answers which we'd like to help you avoid but actually there are some there's some things that is worth you thinking about and thinking about what's my answer here not what does everyone else think the answer should be because the answer that's right for your business at this moment at this time might be very very different Compared to, you know, if you're exactly the same person and taking a different job at a different employer, you might reach some very different conclusions about what needs doing. And, you know, I think both you and I have this obsession of, yeah, but what's going to work now for you here in your situation? <laughs> and hopefully this will help people get to that. Yeah, it's, it's the, I know a lot of employer branders who, who get zealous about this idea and I am always in danger of it because I am obsessed with it I know you are to some extent too um, but the goal of it isn't to come up with some perfect shining diamond of an EVP the goal of it is not to come up with some perfect tagline that makes everybody go <gasps> like I, and I, I, hey every once in a while I trip onto a great tagline that I go oh I think that killed it and when I see the reaction I'm like okay good I got it but is that every day no the goal is to solve a yes. problem which means What's your problem? Where does that problem live? What are all the factors that go into creating that problem? Which of those factors do you have any kind of authority over which responsibility to actually make a change? How much of a change is appropriate or necessary? Like this is not perfect language. It's not perfect pictures. It's not perfect channels. It's not perfect anything. It's just simply problem yes. solving at a deeper level. Completely, completely. I had a conversation years ago with an old boss of mine and he said, what was, well, how would you describe the purpose of my job? And I said, oh, it's easy. It's to make, make my clients look good. What look good is depends on, you know, it might be winning them award. It might not be. It might be, you know, finding a way to do what they did last year, but with a slightly smaller budget. It might be attracting people they couldn't attract. Well, it might be getting that website built and that'd do, that'd make them look good. But it's always what I tend to look at is what's going to help you here? Not what do I like to do or what does the theory said should be done is like, what's going to make you look good. Let's do that. <laughs> and I, I think that is a perfect place to end. Marcus, it's always been a pleasure. I hope uh, everybody listening enjoyed uh, this relatively long conversation. This is our longest I, I one, know. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is good. All right, Marcus, I'll see Absolutely. you next week. See ya. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to The Brand Plan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd spread the word.